0: morning everybody it is the Lord's Day and what better place to be than with the Lord's people on the Lord's Day and I'm glad you're here this morning I hope everybody has had a fantastic and blessed week and uh, you look a little sleepy this morning so I'll try to uh, modulate the volume of my voice to try to keep you awake at times but if you would turn over to John chapter 3 we're going to continue in our journey through the gospel of John And we are going to wrap up John chapter 3. So we're going to be covering verses 22 through the end of the chapter this morning. John chapter 3. So as you're turning there, just point out something. And maybe you've noticed so far, maybe you haven't. But as John has walked us through his gospel, and we have interacted with these people that we've met along the way, both individuals and groups, they're all doing essentially the same thing. They're interacting with Jesus and they're asking the question, who is this man? We'll talk about that a little more at the end of the lesson. But so far, we've seen a lot of people with a lot of serious questions. You think about Nicodemus that we talked about in the last two weeks. Here's a man grappling with the identity of Jesus, struggling to come to terms with who exactly this man is. Yes, he's a teacher sent from God, but is he more than that? Well, so far in John, there have been three individuals that we've met who have had no doubt about the identity of of Jesus, First of all is Jesus himself. Jesus is not on a journey of self-discovery in the Gospels. He is not trying to sort himself out. He's not trying to come to terms with who he really is. Jesus knows who he is, and his identity is tied intrinsically to his purpose. And we see a man on a mission in the Gospels. This is a man who has come to do the will of the Father, right? He tells us that. And so we see him understanding who he is, no doubt about it. The second person who knows who Jesus is, is his own mom. And if you remember back in the wedding at Cana in John chapter 2, that whole story starts off with Jesus' mom bringing to his attention that they are out of wine. Hint, hint, wink, wink, nod, nod, right? And Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? And then she turns to the servants and you remember what she said? Do whatever he tells you. His mother seemed to have no doubt about who the identity of her son really was. Not Joseph's son, but the Heavenly Father's son. And then the third person that knows who Jesus is, is of course John the Baptist, who we're going to talk about again this morning. John the Baptist knows who Jesus is, and so we find him making statements like this. When we're first introduced to him in John chapter 1, he says things like this, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. John knows who Jesus is, and the task he was given by the Heavenly Father was to come and prepare the world for the coming of Jesus as Christ, as Messiah, as this chosen one. And so we're going to talk about John again for the last time in the Gospel of John this morning. He's referenced two other times in the Gospel, but this is the first time we encounter the character of John, and we'll talk about why in just a minute. And so as we get into the text, this is what we find. It says, after this, this is after his encounter with Nicodemus at night. It says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and he baptized. So Jesus is now doing the very thing that John the Baptist has been doing. He goes out into the countryside and people are coming to him and they're being baptized just like they were to John the Baptist. This is going to set up the whole kind of drama that we see unfold in this particular passage. If we go to the next chapter in John chapter 4, we find out right away in the beginning of that chapter that Jesus himself was not actually baptizing anyone, but rather his disciples were doing the baptizing. But nevertheless, it's the work of Jesus that's taking place here. And so Jesus now carries on what John started and he is baptizing people as they come to him in the wilderness. It says in verses 23 and 24, now John also was baptizing. So Jesus begins his public ministry. People are coming to him to be baptized. John is still carrying on with his ministry at the same time. So John also was baptizing at Aenon near Salem because there was plenty of water there. And people were coming and being baptized. And then as a parenthetical note, John adds, this was before John the Baptist was put into prison. And that's important. We'll talk about that. In just a second but first just a note on what it was that John was doing as he was preaching and baptizing people what was his baptism all about later on in the book of Acts as the disciple or the Apostles excuse me for some time have been preaching baptism in the name of Jesus the Apostle Paul encounters some men who at the time only knew the baptism of John so there's clearly a distinction between the baptism of John and what the early church was preaching regarding baptism in the name of Jesus. And so let me just point out to you what we find in Matthew's account. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, as Matthew talks to us about John's ministry, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. So his baptism is a baptism of repentance. He's calling people away from their sins, preparing them for the imminent coming of the kingdom of God. But after me, he says, comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his weed into the barn, and burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so it's a baptism of repentance and also preparation for the one who comes after him who is so much greater than he is. This is what John is preaching as he is baptizing people in the wilderness. The other thing I want to point out to you is what we read about in Matthew chapter 14. So again, quickly go back to this text in our, in our text here, John 3:23 and 24. John's also baptizing, and this was before John was put in prison. Well, the interesting thing is that in John's gospel, there's no account given of how it was that John ended up in prison. And what I think that tells us very clearly is what I said at the beginning of our study of the the Gospel of John, and I want to remind you of it here. John intends for us to read his Gospel alongside other scriptures. We've already seen how much he interacts with the Old Testament scriptures, but he's also, I think, interacting alongside the other synoptic Gospels. John knows of these Gospels, and he's supplementing them. He's not supplanting them. He's not saying, don't pay attention to the other three Gospels. He's saying, pay attention to those other three Gospels. But here's some other information I want to add to you. There's no need for him to go into detail about what the synoptics have already recorded for us. And so he references the imprisonment of John knowing that we have already read the synoptic Gospels and we're familiar with that story. But in case you're not, let me remind you of it. It's found in Matthew chapter 14, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. Just the first two verses say this. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. So Jesus is growing in fame and popularity. Reports reach Herod. Herod. There's another guy out there preaching about the kingdom of God and baptizing people. And this is what Herod's response is. He said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Herod's terrified when he gets reports of Jesus preaching because he thinks John has come back from the dead. Now, Matthew goes on then, and you can mark this passage down and read it later if you'd like, but he goes on to give us an account of what happened. John the Baptist was publicly teaching against the marriage that Herod had with his brother's wife. And, of course, that didn't look good for Herod or his wife. And so he's put into prison, and long story short, there comes a time where there's a celebration And the women in Herod's life call for the death of John the Baptist, and so he has him beheaded and brings the head of John the Baptist to him in the middle of his party on a silver platter. So that's what happened to John the Baptist. But again, John only references it, doesn't detail it, because he wants us to read his gospel alongside the other gospel stories. So that's what's happened to John the Baptist. But John is pointing out in the text here that what we're reading about happens long before he's put into prison. Okay, so this is while John is still out in the wilderness preaching unhampered. So this is what we find in verses 25 and 26. An argument develops between some of John's disciples and a certain Jewish man over the matter of ceremonial. Washing Clearly, it has something to do with these baptisms that are taking place. But exactly what the argument is, we don't know because John doesn't give us that information. Here's the important thing. They came to John and said to him, this is what it really is all about. Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan. Who are they talking about? Jesus. That man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan. The one you testified about. Look, he is baptizing and what's the problem? Everyone is now going to him. So here's the real conflict. John the Baptist's disciples are worried because people are leaving John the Baptist and they're going to Jesus to be baptized. So in other words, Jesus' public ministry is growing while at the same time John's is shrinking. And they're concerned about that. They're disciples of Jesus. Hey, this guy over there is doing the same thing we are, but more people are going to him. So in their mind, they're in competition with this other preacher across the Jordan, and now they've got to do something about it. But it gives a perfect opportunity for John the Baptist to again explain exactly who he is and who Jesus is and what the relationship between the two of them is. And so he goes on in verses 27 and 28. To this John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. Look, I'm only doing what the Father sent me to do. I have been given a job to do. And what was the job? To prepare the way for the one who comes after me. That was the job I was given. And I'm only doing what heaven has called me to do. But he goes on, he says, You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. And if you go back to chapter 1, That's exactly what happens. Some of the Jewish authorities find John as people are flocking to him, wanting to know what's going on, and they ask him, who are you? And do you remember what he said? I am not the Christ. So John's telling the truth here. I have already been crystal clear. I am not the Messiah. My job is to prepare the way for the Messiah. Well, guess what? The one you're worried about on the other side of the Jordan, the one who's getting all the attention, That's the guy I came to tell you about. And so we see in verse 29, he says this, The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it's now complete. Weddings have been a part of every culture since the beginning of time. It would be, I think, haphazard of us, to look at the way we do weddings culturally now and try to impose that on this story and make some application. The way they did weddings then looked very different from the way that we do weddings now. But what we understand intuitively is that there is a big difference between the friend of the groom and the groom himself, right? The wedding day is not all about the friend of the groom, is it? He's not the star of the show. He's not the one standing up there that everybody is looking at it's the bride and the groom it's their day and so the friend of the groom his job is only to do what to tend to the groom himself and to make sure that the bride and the groom are joined together so that everybody can celebrate that marriage and John is saying very clearly is he the groom here or is he the friend of the groom he's the friend of the groom it's not his show it's not his day He's come only to serve the groom and make sure that this marriage happens. And it's such an interesting illustration and application because as John's disciples leave him and join the Jesus movement, what is he really doing but introducing the bride to the groom, right? And this illustration is one that we find throughout Scripture. We've mentioned a couple of these, so I'll just reference them briefly. You can write them down if you want to track them down later. Isaiah chapter 62 and verse 5, As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Throughout the Hebrew Scriptures is this illustration of God taking the Israelite people and joining them to himself as an act of marriage. And so he becomes the groom and they become the bride. We see it again here in Hosea. Of course, Hosea is full of this imagery, right? If you remember the background and story of Hosea. But chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, I will betroth you to me forever. This is God speaking to his people. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. I'm going to join you in marriage. We talked about this back in Exodus. You remember that series several months ago where I talked about, think about what Israel is doing in terms of a Wedding ceremony, God is proposing to Israel, they've accepted the terms of his proposal, and they're going to be married together. It's an abstract way to think about our relationship with God, but God loves that illustration because he uses it over and over. John's using it here in reference to Jesus, and we see it used in other places in the New Testaments in exactly the same way. Ephesians chapter 5, you remember this passage? We famously go to it, in fact, preach out of it a lot of times. I use it in my wedding lessons talking about the relationship between husband and wife, but embedded in this is actually a conversation about Jesus and the church. And so Paul says, husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church. This is that bride imagery. Without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy. And blameless. And then he goes on and he says, I'm speaking of a great mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And then we find it again in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 9. And here's another one you should write down and maybe spend some time in on your own. But there's this beautiful image towards the end of the book of Revelation where the groom, the lamb, the Christ, is finally, finally meeting his bride. And there's this celebration and this feast that happens, this wedding feast. As the two come together. And of course, the Lamb is Jesus, and the bride is whom? It's the church. It's all of us, as redeemed people. And the angel said to me, Write this Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. So John is using all this just to make it crystal clear to his disciples My job was not to come and steal the show. My job was to come and prepare the way for the bridegroom. And he's here, and his bride has come. I'm going to join them together. And then guess what I'm going to do after that? I'm going to get out of the way. Because that's what a good friend of the groom does. He does everything he can to make it about the groom and the bride, not about himself. And so in verse 30, this is what the NIV has. He must become greater, I must become lesser. Other translations famously have it, and I like it. I think it's even more pointed. He must increase, and I must decrease. And if I can speak personally just for a few minutes today, this is a passage that has had such a tremendous and profound impact on me. It's one of my favorite passages in Scripture. As I think about the attitude of John, as he was gifted with the opportunity to preach the good news of the coming of God's kingdom, that this would be the cornerstone of his attitude. And in my own ministry, as I've reflected on this, I think about all the time how important this was to Paul, who, like John, has been called by God to preach. And I want to share with you some passages. If you'll just bear with me a few minutes as we talk about this. It's kind of an aside, but I think it's important. Think about humility in ministry. And I'm not just talking about people who are on the stage. We've crafted a Christian environment today where we Look at, look at the way this auditorium is set up, right? It's all fanned out and it's pointed where? Here, right? We, we focus on the people on the stage, and I'm grateful for your attention as I get to do that, but it's not just about the people that stand behind, Is this, a, this isn't a pulpit, what is this? I don't even know what this thing is called, right? This tiny, cute black table. We need a thunderous pulpit to fill up this stage. But it's not just about the people that are on the stage. This is about anyone who would preach the good news to those around them. And just let me share with you a few things that Paul has to say about this. First of all, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you want to turn over there with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 26. Brothers and sisters, Paul writes, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Well, thanks, Paul. He's making a point. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. And this was true even as God was calling Abraham's descendants to become his people. He found them while they were slaves in Egypt. And he took a people who were helpless And he made them his people to illustrate to the world around them not how amazing they were, but how amazing he was. To illustrate his own strength through the redemptive process that took place in the story of the Exodus. And Paul is just applying that to the church today, saying we're all the same way. We weren't called to Christ because we were the most brilliant people in the world. Some of you are very brilliant. Not because we were the most powerful or the most wealthy or whatever it is, whatever superlative you want to put in there to fill in the blanks. It wasn't because of you and your qualifications that you were called. We are here here to illustrate one thing to the world around us. The surpassing greatness of our God. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And so he goes on, he says, God chose the lowly things of this world and despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, verse 29, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Then he goes on, carries right through in the next chapter the same thought. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence, Or human wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. But oh, we love that, don't we? We'll line up all day to hear a preacher who's eloquent and witty and charming and all of those things. I'm sorry I failed you in all those regards. But we love that, right? We love people who are impressive. We want impressive people to preach in impressive ways. And Paul is saying, I didn't bring any of that to you. I did not come to you with those things that people look for. He says in verse 2, I Resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except this: Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith, listen to this, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. If we build churches on the personalities of the people in the pulpit, those churches will fall apart because those people will fail you. Humility in ministry is vital. It was so important to Paul and it needs to be for us today as well. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll encourage you to spend some time in this whole chapter actually, but let me just... Show you one passage, First Corinthians, or excuse me, Second Corinthians chapter eleven and verse thirty. Paul just gets done boasting about himself, and yet the things he boasts about are all the things that actually make him look weak. And that's what he says. If I will boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. He goes on in the next chapter to say this, Second Corinthians twelve. I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man, he says, in Christ, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. And he heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weakness." Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of the surpassing great revelations. Therefore, in order to... Listen to what he says, and think about the way that he's processing his own life. Therefore, in order to keep me, he says, from becoming arrogant or conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh a messenger of Satan, to torment me. We reference that thorn in Paul's side a lot, and we always ask the question, well, what was it? You know, was it eyesight? Was it some other physical calamity? What, what was it exactly? But we forget the purpose. The purpose wasn't to torment Paul. It was to keep him humble. This is why he was given that thorn in the flesh, to keep him humble. And so he says in verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But this is the answer he got in verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. If you don't have that underlined in your Bibles, I encourage you to do that. Please spend some time thinking about that passage. Therefore, Paul goes on, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness and insults and hardships and persecution in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong, he says. And what a powerful example he leaves for us. Preaching the gospel is not a path to self-glorification. And we can't allow it to become one. We talked about it in the Sermon on the Mount this morning in Glenn's class whatever act of righteousness you find yourself engaged in, if you're doing it so that people recognize you, then it's nothing to do with the gospel. Because the gospel has nothing to do with our strength and everything to do with our weakness. The gospel is built on the premise that at the right time, while we were helpless, Christ came and died for us. When we preach the gospel, in whatever setting we preach the gospel, Let's do it with as much humility as we can muster, boasting in our own weakness and in the strength of our God. Luke 17, verse 7, just one more passage on this and we'll move on. Luke 17, verse 7, this is a passage I don't, maybe some of you haven't read in a while, maybe some of you have never heard it. It's an interesting one and it's one that has, again, kind of taken root in my mind and it's one I go back to a lot. This is Jesus speaking here in verse 7. He says, suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to that servant when he comes in from the field, come along now, sit down and eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that, then you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say we are unworthy servants we have only done our duty i feel like i you know blessed to learn something new in ministry every week but i'll tell you the most important thing i've learned in my time in ministry is i don't deserve any of this i don't deserve even the opportunity i'm given on a regular basis to preach the gospel i don't deserve it The one thing I know for certain is that I am weak. The one thing I know for certain is that I serve an awesome God. The one thing I know for certain is that in spite of all my sins, He loves me still. And He's been so good to me. And He's blessed me so much in this life. He's blessed me with relationships that mean so much to me. He's blessed me physically, yes. He's blessed me with health, even in times when my health struggled. He's blessed me with a lot of things, but the thing I count as among my greatest blessings from the Lord is the opportunity I have on a regular basis to stand up and preach the good news to God's people. And I thank Him for that every day, and I thank you for listening to me because I don't deserve this opportunity And if my weakness helps to illustrate the strength of my God, then I'm here to tell you I'm as weak as they come. Let's strive for humility in our ministry. In whatever capacity we serve, let's do it humbly, remembering at the end of the day, we are just servants. And we've only done what he's asked us to do. So moving on into the text then, John chapter 3, verses 31 through 33, So here again, like last week, we find this interesting situation where we're left trying to figure out when does John the Baptist stop speaking, and when does John, the author of the gospel, start speaking. And depending on what translation you have, you might find quotation marks in different places. In the NIV, the quotation marks end at the end of verse 30, so it's indicating to us they think that's when John the Baptist is done, and John the narrator begins. The original text, though, doesn't have quotation marks. And so we're left, like I talked about last week, doing the best we can with the context, trying to figure it out. But I'll make the same point I did last week, which is at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. What is stated here is true. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. There's this this contrast being illustrated to us between John the Baptist and Jesus, John the Baptist is limited by his earthly perspective on things. Jesus is not, because where has Jesus come from? What did he tell Nicodemus? I'm the only one who came down from heaven, so I'm the only one who can share with you these heavenly truths. And John is recognizing that reality. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Like I said, there's only a few people we've seen so far that are 100% on board with the identity of Jesus. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. We're not going to elaborate on that, but I want you to kind of lock that statement away because we're going to come back to it in John chapter 5. He goes on in verse 34, for the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. And here's another passage where, depending on what your translation is, you're reading from, is going to have something different. NIV here is indicating to us, for God gives the Spirit without limit. In the original text there, it's just, for He gives the Spirit without limit. Well, who's the He? Is it God or is it Jesus? Again, either way, Jesus came to do the will of the Father. We know in chapter 14 through 16, Jesus has come to, to give us the Spirit after He's gone, so, whatever. I just want you to see the difference there in the text depending on what you're reading. But the point is this. The one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. This is the reality. Who was John? Just a guy called by the Father to prepare the way for the one who came after him. Who is the one who came after him? The one sent by God who is God and who is with God and who is from God. And he is the one that we need to listen to because his words come from the Father. He speaks the words of God. There is no higher authority than that. Then we get to verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. And there's two things I want to point out to you quickly. Number one, love. Love. We talk about it all the time. But in John's gospel, it shows up for the first time here in chapter 3. You remember verse 16? That's the first time John uses the word love in this gospel. It's the first time he introduces it to us. But I want you to see something. In verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Who is the subject of God's love in this verse? Who is on the receiving end of God's love in this verse? The world, right? Illustrating God's love for the world, for all of us. But if you notice, back in the verse we're looking at here in verse 35, the Father loves, it's not the world that's the subject of God's love here. It's not the world on the receiving end, but whom? The Son. The Son. This is the first time that we're introduced to in this gospel the idea that there is a mutuality of love between God the Father and God the Son. God loves the Son. God loves the Son. And there is this idea throughout the gospel, and we'll get into it, especially in chapter 17, it becomes so beautiful, that God the Father and God the Son love each other. And they're calling us to be participants in that love with them, so that as God loves the Son, He might love us as well. We get to become partakers in that relationship. But I just want to show you that it shows up for the first time here. And then here's the other thing. You remember this song? I'll start at you. Fill in the blank. He's got the whole world, all right, in His hands. Right. This is the whole idea. God has given everything over to the Son. He holds everything. In his hands. And again, this is an idea that's first introduced to us here, but we find scattered throughout scripture. And for time's sake, again, I wish I had more time to go through this. Let me just reference a couple. You can chase them down on your own. Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. One of my favorite passages about the nature of Christ himself. When he raised Christ, Paul writes, from the dead and seated him. At the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Jesus didn't come just as an errand boy for the Father. He has the full authority of the Father. He comes to do the Father's will, to speak the Father's words, and to rule alongside the Father. This is what Paul says in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Have this attitude among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking on human flesh, and became humble to the point of death. Even death, where? On a cross. Jesus came to serve. But this is what happens as a result of his humility and his service. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We start thinking in terms of, you know, physicality, like above the earth, on the earth, below the earth. What is he talking about? He's just saying no one escapes the authority of the Son. God has given all things into his hands. And Jesus serves with all authority at the right hand of the Father on high. We'll talk about that more, but I want you to understand that. And then we get to verse 36. And this is the end of this chapter. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. Listen to what he says and pay attention to it. For God's wrath remains on him. And a few passages, again, to write down and chase down on your own about wrath. Romans chapter 1. Spend some time in Romans chapter 1 this week and see what Paul has to say about the coming of God's wrath. In verses 18 and 19, he introduces the whole conversation by saying this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. He goes on to say that his invisible attributes can be clearly seen through what has been made so that we are without excuse. And then he goes on to detail what it looks like from humanity's perspective that we just grew in corruption and the corruption snowballed and the sin snowballed and God gave us over to all of that. We are helpless apart from the love of God made manifest in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the point of the Gospel of John. Colossians 3, verses 5 through 6. Put to death, therefore, Paul writes, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. But here's what I want you to understand about wrath and what it has to do with Jesus. It's this. The good news is not that Jesus came to make the innocent guilty. He didn't come to humanity who was already on a good course, accomplishing everything we ever dreamed of, everything was going fine, and he said, you know what, you need a little wrath in your lives. So I'm going to come and I'm going to bring condemnation, and I'm going to bring damnation, and I'm going to bring God's wrath upon humanity. That's not why Jesus came. He did not come to make the innocent guilty. He came so that in him, the guilty might be found innocent. Do you understand the call of the gospel? Do you understand what John is trying to explain to us about who Jesus is and what he came to do? Like I said at the beginning of this lesson, the identity of Jesus is intrinsically tied to his mission and his purpose. Who was he and what did he come to do? We find this invitation scattered throughout the Gospel of John. Again, the end of chapter 20, he tells us why he wrote the Gospel, so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And by believing, we might have life in his name. But that invitation into belief, he doesn't wait until chapter 20. Every time we find Jesus encountering a new group of people or a new individual, there's an invitation embedded in it to come to belief. An invitation out of darkness and into light. An invitation out of death and into life. An invitation out of condemnation and into justification. An invitation out of God's wrath. And into his love. And that invitation is offered to you every time we open up this gospel. And every time we encounter Jesus along the way. And so that's the invitation I'm offering to you this morning. I'm hoping that you're listening. I'm hoping that you're paying attention. I'm hoping that the Spirit it is at work in us and through us and among us. And I hope that you're feeling, you're feeling a little bit of a tug this morning. Some of you have already given your life to Christ. We just remind you of how simple the gospel call is. Follow him. Put your trust fully in him. For those of you who have not yet responded to that call, won't you listen to the call of your Savior this morning? If there's anything we can do to serve you, please let us know. We're going to stand and we're going to sing a song in just a second. I know some of you really don't like the idea of coming down in front of everybody. That's fine. If you want to, we're here to serve. I invite you to do that. If not, find me afterwards. If you feel that tug on your heart this morning, don't leave here without doing something about it. Will you stand and sing with us? Let's stand. Welcome to the